Sunday blessings to you all. This is the Lord's Day, the day of resurrection that commences a new week and offers a new opportunity to be drawn by grace more deeply into the paschal mystery of Jesus Christ. Through the gifts of the Holy Spirit, may each of us graciously respond to Jesus' invitation to live more deeply his passion, death, and glorious resurrection and ascension, and be drawn into loving communion with God our Father. You are listening to Encountering Jesus with the Church Fathers, a podcast pondering patristic commentary and insight on the sacred scriptures, the sacred liturgy, and living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Father Mark, and I welcome you to this podcast on the 11th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Guiding us this Sunday in opening the Word of God is St. Gregory of Nazianzus. He was born in the year 330 in what is now known as Nenenzi, located in southwestern Turkey. Raised in a Christian and economically comfortable household, Gregory had access to various educational opportunities, culminating in the study of rhetoric and poetry at the University of Athens. It was here that he met St. Basil the Great, and the two formed a lifelong friendship. In time, Basil and Gregory were both prepared for priestly ordination, a reality that Gregory reluctantly accepted. Gregory preferred a more monastic approach to life, centered on study and prayer. As his friend Basil was shoring up the faith in the province of Caesarea, he convinced Gregory to become the bishop of Sassima, as a result of tense situations, both from within and without the diocese, Gregory returned home, only to become in time what amounted to a chaplain at the chapel of the Anastasis in Constantinople. Eventually, he became the bishop of Constantinople and was one of the leaders of the Council of Constantinople in 381. While his theological writings were a great and necessary contribution to the Council's Christology and Trinitarian theology, Gregory did not fare well with matters of administration. He was eventually deposed of both the See of Constantinople and Presidency of the Council, probably hurt by his treatment, yet relieved of burdens he knew he could not handle, he retired to his family estate, and spent the remainder of his life devoted to prayer and writing. History would eventually bestow the titles of the theologian and the poet upon Gregory. He penned numerous pieces on pertinent theological and pastoral questions. Five of these treatises are known as the theological orations, as they 
deal with Trinitarian personhood against the writings of Eunomius. Today's excerpt is taken from Oration 28, known also as Theological Oration 2 on the Doctrine of God, wherein St. Gregory reflects on Exodus chapter 19, the first reading proclaimed this Sunday. Last time, we used theology to cleanse the theologian. We glanced at his character, his audience, the occasion and range of his theorizing. We saw that his character should be undimmed, making for a perception of light by light, to ensure that the word shall not be sterile, sown in a sterile ground, that the right occasion is when we own an inner stillness away from the outward world, avoiding all fitful checks to the spirit, and that the range should be that of our God-given capacity. These truths were established last time, and so we broke up our fallow soil with God's furrows, not wanting to sow on thorns. We leveled off the face of the ground, impressed and impressing it with Scripture's stamp. Well now, let us go forward to discuss the doctrine of God, dedicating our sermon to our sermon's subjects, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that the Father may approve, the Son aid, and the Holy Spirit inspire it, or rather that the single Godhead's single radiance by mysterious paradox, one in its distinctions and distinct in its connectedness, may enlighten us. I eagerly ascend the mount, or, to speak truer, ascend in eager hope, matched with anxiety for my frailty, that I may enter the cloud and company with God, for such is God's bidding. Is any an Aaron? He shall come up with me. He shall stand hard by, should he be willing to wait, if he need be outside the cloud. Is any a Nadab, an Abihu, or an elder? He too shall ascend, but stand further off, his place matching his purity. Is any of the crowd unfit as they are for so sublime contemplation? Utterly unhallowed? Let him not come near, it is dangerous. Duly prepared? Let him abide below. He shall hear but the voice and the trumpet, true religion's outer expressions. He shall see the mount in smoke with its lightning flashes, 
warning and wonder to those who cannot ascend it. Is any an evil, untamed beast, quite impervious to thoughts of contemplation and divinity? He shall not lurk in the woods, baneful and harmful, to pounce out on some truth or utterance and rend wholesome thoughts with his abuse. No, he shall stand still farther off. He shall quit the mount or be stoned and crushed. An evil death for an evil man, seeing that the brutish find real and solid arguments to be stones. Is he a leper? He shall die spots and all. A predatory roaring lion seeking our souls or our phrases for meat? A swine trampling truth's fair, clear pearls? A wolf, Arabian and foreign, or even sharper than these, are chopped logic? A fox, a shifty, treacherous soul, matching its form to the hour's need, fed off stinking corpses, or avoiding the big ones, off little vineyards. Some other carnivore, rejected by the law, unclean, useless as food, our sermon leaves these behind, meaning to be engraved on solid tables of stone, and on both sides of these, because the law has an obvious and hidden aspect. The obvious belongs to the crowd waiting below, the hidden to the few who attain the height. What experience of this I had, you friends of truth, her initiates, her lovers as I am? I was running with a mind to see God, and so it was that I ascended the mount. I penetrated the cloud, became enclosed in it, detached from matter and material things, and concentrated so far as might be, in myself. But when I directed my gaze, I scarcely saw the averted figure of God, and this while sheltering in the rock, God the Word incarnate for us. Peering in, I saw not the nature of prime, inviolate, self-apprehended, by self, I mean Trinity, the nature as it all abides within the first veil and is hidden by the cherubim, but as it reaches us at its furthest, removed from God, being so far as I can understand the grandeur, or as divine David calls it, the majesty inherent in the created things he has brought forth and governs. All these indications of himself that he has left behind him are God's averted figure.
They are, as it were, shadowy reflections of the sun and water, reflections which display to eyes too weak because too impotent to gaze at the sun overmastering perception in the purity of its light. Thus, and thus only, can you speak of God. Be you Moses, Pharaoh's God, had reached you, like Paul, the third heaven, and heard ineffable mysteries. Had you even transcended it, deemed worthy of an angel or archangel's station and rank. For were a thing all heavenly, all super-celestial even, far more sublime in nature than ourselves, far nearer God, its remoteness from him and from his perfect apprehension is much greater than its superiority to our low, heavy compound. So we must begin again with this in mind. To know God is hard, to describe him impossible, as a pagan philosopher taught, subtly suggesting, I think, by the word difficult, his own apprehensions, yet avoiding our test of it by claiming it was impossible to describe. No, to tell of God is not possible, so my argument runs, but to know him is even less possible. For language may show the known, if not adequately, at least faintly, to a person not totally deaf and dull of mind. But mentally to grasp so great a matter is utterly beyond real possibility, even so far as the very elevated possibility and devout are concerned, never mind slack and sinking souls. The truth applies to every creature born to all beings whose view of reality is blocked by this gloom, this gross portion of flesh. Whether higher incorporeal natures can grasp it, I do not know. They may, perhaps, through their proximity to God and their illumination by light in its fullness, know God, if not with total clarity, at least more completely, more distinctly than we do, their degree of clarity varying proportionately with their rank. But enough of this. For our part, not only does God's peace pass all thought and understanding with all things stored up in promise for the righteous, things unseen by the eye, unheard by the ear, unthought or at least but glimpsed by the mind. But so does exact knowledge of creation as well. You can be sure that we possess but the bare outline of the creation when you hear the words, I shall see the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, and the fixed order 
they contain. He does not see them now, but there is a time when he shall see them. Yes, far more than these things does their transcendent cause. The incomprehensible and boundless nature pass understanding. I mean understanding what that nature is, not understanding that it exists. Our preaching is not vain, our faith empty. It is not that doctrine we are proponding. Do not take our frankness as ground for atheistic cavilling and exalt yourself over against us for acknowledging our ignorance. Conviction, you see, of a thing's existence is quite different from knowledge of what it is. That God, the creative and sustaining cause of all, exists, sight and instinctive law inform us, sight which lights upon things seen as nobly fixed in their courses, born along in, so, so to say, motionless movement, indistinctive law, which infers their author through the things seen in their orderliness. How could this universe have had foundation or constitution unless God gave all things being and sustains them? No one seeing a beautifully elaborated lyre with its harmonious, orderly arrangement and hearing the lyre's music will fail to form a notion of its craftsman player. To recur to him in thought, though ignorant of him by sight. In this way, the creative power, which moves and safeguards its objects, is clear to us though it be not grasped by the understanding. Anyone who refuses to progress this far in following instinctive proofs must be very wanting in judgment. But still, whatever we imagined or figured to ourselves or reason delineated is not the reality of God. If anyone ever did compass this in any degree of thought? Where is the proof? Who was it who reached this ultimate in wisdom? Who was it who was sometime counted worthy of so great a gift? Who was it who thus opened the mind's mouth and drew in the spirit that by the spirit which searches out and knows God's depths, he might comprehend God, might stand in no need of further progress as owning already the ultimate object of desire through which speeds all a lofty soul's thought and conduct. St. Gregory of Nazianzus, pray for us. Let us pray. O God, strength of those who hope in you, graciously hear our pleas. 
And since without you, mortal frailty can do nothing, grant us always the help of your grace, that in following your commands, we may please you by our resolve and our deeds. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Go and announce the Gospel of the Lord. <laughs>